All right, we will transition to our Bible study tonight, and we will be in the book of Judges. Book of Judges. And the book of Judges can be a depressing book if we look at it the wrong way. It's depressing in that it reveals where man ends up when he forsakes God and forsakes God's word and lives in idolatry and disobedience. We know that the theme of the book of Judges is that man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man began doing what is right in his own eyes. And we see this cycle throughout the book of Judges. And you'll see on the screen there behind me the pattern as Joshua passed from the scene and those who knew him. And then we see in the book of Judges, we see the rampant idolatry and immorality and the depravity of man's heart just really kind of coming out in its worst forms. And we can't think of ourselves and our culture right now as that much better than what's going on in the book of Judges with the way man is living. It's again, the names and the faces change, but sin remains the same. And the way in which man is living, and we can use modern terms like expressive individualism and live your own truth and postmodernism and post-postmodernism, whatever you want to call it, we see that man, when he rejects God and his word, and the grace and the mercy of God is lifted because man rejects God, then the depravity of man's heart comes out. Romans 1 talks about some of the stages and the reprobate mind. And here we see in the book of Judges this cycle of sin followed by oppression. Some typically Canaanite nation, nation state or nation, will then oppress Israel as they are in disobedience and idolatry and some form of immorality and, and their, their wickedness, then God will use one of those ungodly pagan nations to bring judgment. And then there will be a cry out for God to remember them, to forgive them, to help them. And that's where we see the repentance. And then God will, in his mercy, bring a judge. And the deliverance will come and... We'll see even with Gideon, there is a, uh, with even the judges, they're, they're, these, these judges are often very conflicted, very uh, in, their own, in their own way, uh, very uh, disobedient in certain areas, like Samson, who was obviously a sensual uh, immoral man, uh, and yet uh, God used him to conquer the Philistines even uh, at his death. Uh, so many of the judges are even uh, very sinful people, have a lot of faults and failures. At some point, even in the book of Judges, we see where there are no men to be the leaders and to be the ones who will step up and be the judge. And, and, and Deborah has to come and be the leader. And God uses a woman to put a spike in the temple of the, uh, of the 
a wicked general. And God had to use, not that God can't use women, not that women aren't, aren't equal, of course they are, but where a man should have stepped up and been the leader and led Israel, there were no men who were strong enough and willing to be that leader. And God used Deborah and even a, a woman to drive a spike through the head of a wicked general to bring victory for, for Israel. So deliverance would then result in a time of peace and obedience. And then, once again, there would be a drift into idolatry and immorality, and the cycle would begin all over again. And we see that pattern throughout the book of Judges. And sad to say, sometimes this is the pattern of our lives. For some people, for some Christians, for many who are unsaved, there is a constant going from crisis to crisis, and God is trying to get a hold of the unsaved person through their crisis and bring them to him. Many times, the crises that even our nation goes through are ways in which God is saying, repent. God is saying, come to me. See that I am the answer. I am your salvation. And even through these crises, there's God crying out and through the judges and God is having mercy even upon his nation instead of destroying them outright. He continues to bring a judge. And even though this cycle repeats itself over and over and over, God has mercy. And eventually, God brings Samuel, who was a righteous judge, who even he himself had some flaws in not taking care of his home and his own children were uh, killed by God for offering strange fire to the Lord. But eventually then Saul and then David and the monarchy. But We often see in some cases, in some believers' lives, this is the cycle that they live in. And God doesn't want us to live in this cycle. But I call it crisis Christianity, where people live in a constant cycle of crisis, and they never deal with the root issue. They never really get through the issues and give them to the Lord and heal in relationships. And I I call it crisis Christianity because... They get into this cycle, and it's like they take the problem, and they sweep it underneath the rug, and they cover it up for a little while, and then eventually it comes right back out again. I did a lot of carpet and wax when I was in college. I paid my way through college doing carpet cleaning and stripping and waxing floors. And uh, I can tell you a, a store in the mall that has terrible carpet, terrible. They need to replace their carpet. It has so many stains on it. But there's something about walking into a store and it has nice white tile, shiny, and now you got those machines that are even automatically driven. You go to Sam's Club, even at Payless, there's an automatic floor cleaning machine and you get too close to it, it stops and it beeps at you, you know. And, uh, you know, you... I, I had these carpet and these, these wax floors, and they were, there were a couple of them that were just aggravating because no matter how much we cleaned them, the stain would keep coming back. There was a rubber gym floor at the primary center, and we would strip and wax that floor. It seemed like we would do it three or four or five times just trying to get all of the imperfections out of that rubber floor. And if we didn't do it right, somebody in the administration at the primary center would say, what is wrong with our floor? And so we'd have to go back over there. So, you know, there are, there are ways in which sometimes we never, we never deal with it. We never 
deal with the, the root of the stain of sin, and it keeps coming back. You know, you can go to the, car, you can go to the store and you can get those carpet cleaners, and you spray it on, you wipe it down, and then six weeks later, or a few weeks later, that stain comes back. Because something is in the carpet that has not been removed, or there's been a bond to the carpet fibers itself, and it keeps coming back. And sin is that way. If we don't deal with the root, if we don't deal with the habit, if we don't deal with the actual cause, or don't heal in that relationship, don't get that fixed biblically in the way God says to, if we don't then replace that sin with a good Christ-like biblical habit, fruit of the Spirit, then that sin keeps coming back. And this cycle, sadly, it represents uh, many Christians' lives. So this is where we're at in the country of Israel. You can see some, um, maybe barely, some orange and red and green lines. And basically, we're going to operate along this line up here. This is where Gideon is confronted by the angel of the Lord. And then this is where the battle takes place. And then he chases the Midianites all the way down. So that was a long, long chase as he dealt with the Midianites and uh, the, um, the other country, the other nation that was involved with the Midianites, primarily the Midianites. As he is... Uh, defeating them in battle, they will actually go all the way down to the southern uh, part there on the uh, east side of the Jordan River. So let's go quickly through in this character study, let's quickly go through a summary of Judges 6 through 8 and look at a timeline of events in Gideon's life. And then we'll look at some lessons that we can learn from the life of Gideon in our series that we have started now on uh, character studies. Uh, we are uh, looking at Old Testament and New Testament characters, and we'll spend uh, this week on Gideon. Next week, I've asked Brother Earl to uh, do the Bible study. We'll be out of town uh, next week. Uh, Kelly's going to a pastor's wives retreat down in North Carolina, and since we're just going to be a couple hours away uh, from Emily, we decided to make it a family trip and go down and see her. And then Chandler's got a meeting with the baseball coach down there. And so we're hoping to accomplish uh, several different things on our trip. So I appreciate Earl uh, taking my spot next uh, Wednesday night and leading our Bible study. But we know the story of Gideon. Maybe we learned the song growing up. Gideon, Gideon, marching off to fight. Pitcher in his left hand, trumpet in his right. Though it may seem foolish not to trust in the sword. Gideon is no fool, for he trusted in the Lord. Anybody, anybody know that song? Okay, good, good. All right. So that's my attempt, poor attempt at a solo. Some of you could have joined in with me. <laughs> I learned that song growing up, and it has uh, obviously stuck with me. But we know the story of Gideon very well. Uh, we'll quickly go through this in uh, summary form. Israel in Judges chapter 6, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. We know that they were involved with the worship of the idol Baal, the false god Baal, because Gideon is told to destroy an altar to Baal. So we know that they are involved in idolatry and the immorality that went with the worship of Baal. 
being an agrarian, agricultural god, and all the, the perver- all the perverse and pagan forms of worship that went with it. We know Ahab and Jezebel. Many years later, that would be introduced back again into Israel in the time of the kings. So Israel is worshiping, particularly the false god of Baal, disobedient to God's commands. So God puts them in that cycle of sin and then oppression. They, for seven years, are under the hand of the Midianites. Verse number three, and so it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites, that was the other nation I uh, drew a blank a minute ago, Midianites and the Amalekites were both involved in this oppression. And the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass. So they were conquering the land. They were taking basically everything from Israel to the point that in verse 2, Israel is hiding in the dens, the mountains, the caves, and the strongholds. This is a really bad oppression that the Amalekites and the Midianites have brought upon Israel. And God is trying to get Israel's attention. So we see even down in verse number 6, there's a reference to the children of Israel being greatly impoverished. And then we see that they cry out to God for help. So we see this cycle, sin, oppression, and then there is a cry out for help. There is the beginning stages of their repentance. And so God sends a prophet. We don't see prophets a lot in the book of Judges. But verse 8, the Lord sent a prophet. He goes without name. Under the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. So the prophet rebukes them. Look at all that God has done for you and you have disobeyed him you have run after a false god and this is why you are in the 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 condition that you are in and then in verse 11 and the and i and there came an angel of the lord and sat under an oak which was in ophrah now there is likely a a christophany here this is likely the angel of the lord being a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. We call that a Christophany. So we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are eternal. One God, three persons. All three persons of the Trinity were involved in creation. All three persons of the Trinity are active, even in the Old Testament, though the ministry of the Holy Spirit expands in the New Testament, though we see in the incarnation the Second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, here is a Christophany, most likely the angel of the Lord, appears to Gideon in chapter 6 and verse 11. What's Gideon doing? He's hiding, he's threshing wheat in a hiding place, verses 11 and 12. That's way up in the north part of Israel that we looked at on the map. And the angel did what? The angel tells Gideon that God would use him to deliver Israel from the Midianites. In verse 13, Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? So here's Gideon, and 
he's complaining about all the bad things. Instead of recognizing the obvious cause of all this oppression and poverty and famine is directly related to Israel's sin. Gideon has picked up on the cultural excuses of the day, as we often see even now Christians making excuses and trying to blame God and saying God is not merciful and God is not gracious and somehow, you know, God doesn't care and where's God? Instead of looking and saying, yeah, I can see very clearly why we're in the trouble we're in. It's because of our sin. So God has to help Gideon understand this is the result of their sin. This, this is the, the fruit of, of their sin, the sowing and reaping. And then we see in verse 14, the Lord looked upon him and said, Go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have not I sent thee? The angel of the Lord goes straight to the point. Gideon, you need to be the one to lead Israel against the Midianites. He's not going to listen to all the excuses. He's not going to sit there and do a long explanation. He's already, through the prophet, told Israel, Have I not been the God who delivered you from Egypt, who brought you to this land? Have you not forsaken me? The prophet has already declared why they're suffering. The angel of the Lord doesn't get into a debate with Gideon and give a long list of excuses. It's very clear and obvious. And he says, basically, Gideon, I'm not even going to answer that question. You got a job to do. Sometimes I think we're so busy trying to complain and gripe and what are you, where are you at, God, and what are you doing, when we have a job to do. There is a great deal of sin in the world, and God just wants us to step up. And he has the great commission. He has commands and principles and promises that we are to live by, and we just need to get busy doing them instead of complaining. So we continue in the timeline. The first thing that God has Gideon do is to take down this altar of Baal. Um, but in the, right before that happens, the angel of the Lord uh, causes a fire to come up from the stone where the meal that they had just prepared was sitting. And then Gideon builds an altar to the Lord upon uh, seeing that meal taken up in flames. And then the first job that he gives him to do is to tear down his father's altar to Baal and make it an altar to God. He does it by night, and then that brings us down toward the end, or actually toward the, uh, yeah, toward the end or the midpoint of chapter number 6. So this altar to Baal has been replaced, and Gideon's father speaks up for Gideon because obviously Israel, the people there, They see this altar to Baal has been torn down and replaced with an altar to God, and they begin to complain, and Gideon's father steps up and defends him. But then the Midianites and the Amalekites come into the valley of Jezreel and set up camp to bring the battle to Israel. And God has told Gideon, you're going to be the one to lead Israel against the Midianites. So Gideon sends out messengers to form an army, Then he sets out the fleece because he's worried, he's nervous, he's starting to have a little doubt. Is this really what you want me to do, Lord? He's already said, who am I? Now he's really starting to say, who am I? So he sets out the fleece. So the messengers went out, 32,000 men show up, but 22,000 were chickens. 
We have a little joke around our, hel- around our house. If someone's afraid to do something around the house, we spell out a little word called chicken, C-H-I-C-K-E-N. That in the way we spell, and then we give the person's name. If they're afraid to smash the bug, or go into a certain room, or to whatever, whatever it might be, we, we joke around. Well, these 22,000 men were chickens, but also God was at work because he was going to show that the battle belongs to the Lord. And then there were 10,000 left. They went down to the water, and we know the ones that brought the water up where they could see, and they drank from their hand, where they could still look out and see. Those are the ones that God chose. And so... Gideon was left with 300. Again, we know what that would be like. God, you've called me to take on the Midianites with how many? (laughs) 300? Uh, These men haven't been through Army Ranger training, Navy SEAL training. These are not people who are particularly adept at military maneuvers and strategies. God says, these are the 300 I've chosen. And so they have God's strategy. They divide into three groups. Trumpet in the left hand, or excuse me, trumpet in the right hand, pitcher in the left hand, trumpet in the right hand. They break the pitchers, which shows the flame. They blow the trumpet, and God sends fear into the heart of the Midianites. And uh, there were obviously Amalekites as well uh, involved uh, in that. Uh, encampment, but the Midianites were the, the main ones. They were the leading, the leading group. They got so scared upon hearing the trumpets, upon seeing the flames, and God put fear. Obviously, God was showing that he was more powerful, and they took off running. And Gideon then sent messengers to Ephraim as the Midianites and the Amalekites took off running into the land of Ephraim. Gideon said to the Ephraimites, come help. They helped kill two of the princes of the Midianites. But then the Ephraimites, being kind of stuck-up snobs that they were, complained about not being called earlier. And Gideon responded in a very kind way, and he said, Is not your conquering of the two kings of the Midianites, is that not your glory? And that satisfied them and avoided the controversy. Then they came to the town of Succoth and Penuel, and the people there said, We're not going to get involved in the fight. And Gideon kind of lost his temper, said, I'm going to come back and get revenge on you. He captures and kills the princes of Midian, and then he punishes Succoth and Penuel. And there's debate as to whether Gideon was justified in doing this. It it seems that he was doing an act of revenge. It seems that he was responding in anger, though commentators can disagree a little bit. It seems that he was acting more out of his own self-will and anger than he was out of God's leading in punishing Succoth and Penuel, though they should have come out and helped. Then he makes an ephod, which unfortunately became an idol. And though the land had rest for 40 years, that ephod became an idol to the people of Israel, and they began to follow their idolatrous ways. That's a summary. So here again is where the battle, where they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers with the torches, And they chased them all the way down and across the Jordan River. Here in the land of Ephraim is where the Ephraimites came and helped. 
Here's where Succoth and Penuel, they wouldn't help. So Gideon came back and punished them, but they chased them all the way down into these southern regions down there. So that was the, the battle. Here is actually, uh, supposedly, where the spring at the foot of Mount Gilboa, where Gideon conquered the Midianites. This is a picture of modern-day Israel, where that spring uh, seems to still be located, as best as the archaeologists and historians can tell. So in the few minutes that we have left, we'll go through just a few lessons. God can use anyone. Gideon was not someone that most of us probably would have chosen. That would have been first on our list. But God took a, really a boy, a young man, and said, I've got a job for you to do, and I'm going to give you the power to do it. Just obey. And it's a reminder of how we need to be willing, need to be humble, and need to be obedient, like Gideon. In a very dark, idolatrous, immoral culture, sometimes we just have to be the Gideon. to Just step up, and God says, I want to use you, and we have to just go out and do what God says. And he gives us the commands, and again, the principles. He gives us the power to live by, and we need to be obedient. And it may not always be easy. It may seem overwhelming, but God can use us if we just depend upon him. And again, the battle belongs to the Lord. 300 men against, a, um, against tens, dozens of thousands of Midianites and Amalekites. It seemed impossible, but with God all things are possible. We're to obey God in every detail, from the 32,000 to the 22,000 to the 300, to lapping the water, to pitcher, pitchers of, with torches and trumpets. They didn't go with swords and spears and knives. But he obeyed in every detail, even though it looked like the silliest way to fight a battle. Yet God was in it. And when God's in it and we're obedient, then God can do great things. And again, we can't live in fear. We must trust God. God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. God's ways are best, even when they don't make sense to us. I think we see that over and over in the life of Gideon. And then just for a minute or two here, we have to remember that the fleece is not a demonstration of how we are to determine God's will. God had already told Gideon what to do. When he put the fleece out and God, in his mercy, honored Gideon, he wasn't being prescriptive of how we find the will of God. This is how some Christians are, are very superstitious in finding the will of God. God, if you do this or you do that for me, then I'll know that you want me to do this. And sometimes it'll be something like a girl who wants to marry a certain boy and he's unsaved or he's not a, a good godly leader, he's not a godly man. And the, the, the girl will say, well, well, if he starts coming to church and he's willing to come with me, then, then I know it must be the will of God. You know, things like that. We begin to Tell God, if you do things my way, then I'll obey you. That's dangerous, okay? We have to be careful that we don't start setting out fleeces and thinking that we can determine God's will by these kind of superstitious, if you just work out this, if you do this for me, I'll do this. And if that's the case, then we should be putting out some sheep wool regularly in our lives, right? And if God keeps the sheep wool wet or dry, 
or the ground wet or dry, then that will determine what we do for that day. I mean, if we really want to get down to the nitty-gritty of this, then we should be buying up a lot of sheep wool and setting a lot of fleeces out. No, that's not how we're to be living our lives. We're to live according to the Word of God. This is how we know the will of God, by applying the commands, principles, and promises of God's Word, being led of the Holy Spirit, and not by superstition. God had already told Gideon what to do. The fleece was actually an act of doubt, and God yet still had mercy on him and answered his prayer, even though he was doing so out of, out of doubt, not out of obedience. And then, as we saw there with the ephod, good things can become idols. Good things can become idols. And how often do we have ephods in our lives where it's something that might be good? Whoops, I hit. There can be something that's not necessarily wrong in and of itself, something that might be decent, respectable. We can give lots of examples. Phones can become idols and all the attractions and all the apps and all the, screen, all the movies and all the entertainment that comes through with the touch of an app or the touch of an icon or, or an app on our phone. We can have idols that are on the internet. We can have idols that are people superstars and celebrities, all kinds of different idols, but there are things that might be neutral in a sense in and of themselves, but we put too much emphasis on them. We prioritize them instead of God, and we don't seek first the kingdom of God, and we don't let Christ have the preeminence like he should, and then a good thing can become an idol. And we saw with Gideon, he meant well with that ephod. He meant it as a memorial this is an example, this is a memorial to what God did for us, but then it became a stumbling block for Israel. So we have to watch out for those stumbling blocks in our lives. That was a lot, I know, in a short amount of time, but I hope that was helpful to us from the life of Gideon. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we thank you again for our church family, for our time of prayer and time in the Word. Lord, Gideon was a man with faults, with failure. Uh, he seemed to even be prone to some anger and even when he meant well, unfortunately, the people took that memorial and made it into an idol. We see how he threw the fleece out, and yet he knew what he was supposed to do already. Uh, Lord, we can learn from uh, Gideon in some of the mistakes he made, but we can also see his bravery and his courage. We can see his willingness to just go out and go into battle and just follow and obey you in every detail, even when it didn't seem to make sense, knowing that you can do the impossible. Lord, may we have that attitude and have that willingness and have that humility and depend upon you like Gideon did. And Lord, help us to avoid some of the mistakes and some of the failures in his life. Uh, but Lord, in this uh, dark world in which we live with the idolatry and the immorality all around us, help us to be obedient, help us to be courageous, help us to be brave like Gideon. To your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Hope you have a great rest of the week. And don't forget about security training on Saturday if you're involved in that. Otherwise, we'll see you on Sunday.